I am Wendell B. Harris Jr., and you are listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard Hollywood Hit Men and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as Julie Christie, Huey P. Newton, Fidel Castro, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. Most of these episodes will begin with a reading from the memoir, followed by a brief conversation about the material covered. But today, we're just going to kick things off with a little conversation with Paul Williams. So, Paul, welcome to your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Now, it's been a long time coming. We're doing this in conjunction with the release of your book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hit Men and Holy Men, as part of the Screen Classic series from University Press of Kentucky. And, yeah, I'm just really excited to be opening up your book, having you read sections from it, and having the opportunity to talk about it and fill in some of the blanks for listeners who may not have read the whole book. So uh, can you tell us what you've been up to and where you've been since 1997, which is the year of your last screen credit on IMDb? Ah, that's a quarter of a century. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say that I certainly was uh, uh, having my adventures and investigating the extraordinary realms and uh, it's a long story, which I tell uh, about in the book, but make it, I'm just going to jump to the high points. Through a series of coincidences, I met uh, the man who founded Domino's Pizza, a guy named Tom Monahan, who was friends with Pope John Paul II. And uh, I was supposed to come in to talk to him about uh, consulting with him as he uh, got his big movie made. Uh, And I was interested, I'd make a few bucks and would give me something that I could do. Uh, But 
when I finally met him toward the end of his trip to L.A., when he'd met many big producers and directors, uh, and he, I met him and we started talking about John Paul II, I spoke at length about uh, the Pope's mysticism and history, and uh, uh, it, uh, it uh, engaged him. And he then asked me out to have dinner with him, you know, with wine that costs thousands of dollars a bottle and we continued our talk and at one point he said he was going to die broke and I said me too I said when are you going to die and all the lawyers he had his lawyer I had my lawyer they all said well Paul 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 I said no no if he's if you can die broke you have to know when you're going to die and make a reverse amortization schedule right Tom and Tom said absolutely uh, so we really got along and uh, talked a lot about uh, spirit. Anyway, after the, this was at the Four Seasons in L.A., after we finished probably around 10 o'clock at night, we started at 4 in the afternoon, uh, my friend and attorney, Dennis R.D., walked him to the, his limo to see if I would get the deal for a few grand to be his advisor. And he turned around to Dennis and said, uh, of all these people we've met in Hollywood, he was the only one who didn't talk about a deal. All he talked about was spirit. I want him to produce the movie. <laughs> so that's how I got the job producing a $55 million movie about John Paul II, the Pope. And I spent a number of years, well, I, what I did really was I had a great idea for the movie. It was going to be about the assassin, Aliaka, and uh, follow him and how he uh, came to shoot the Pope and then follow the Pope and his development and how he became the Pope. But I also thought it would be a good idea to get a good writer, and I went up to uh, Sun Valley, Idaho, to see uh, John Jack Riley, the late Jack Riley. Uh, Jack had written uh, Gandhi, and he's a wonderful writer. And he wanted to do a straight biopic of the Pope. And Jack and I became friends, and I said, okay. And we spent the next two years, really, on a very uh, generous <laughs> expense account, uh, going uh, to the Vatican, meeting with the archbishops, the cardinals, the uh, Pope, going to meet Lech Walesa, meeting uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, just... Uh, all the big officials from the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, because really the Pope was the author of the... Uh, he was telling Walesa what to do. He was really running the whole operation from the Vatican. And that was really became the story that we were going to tell, called Then the Walls Came Tumbling Down. And uh, the deeper I got into it, the more interesting it became. I ended up with it, meeting with the, you know, the ex-head of the CIA... Uh, uh, to talk about the assassination. Who was that? Uh, what's his name? He was Secretary of Defense uh, under Bush. Uh, and and Clinton. what's his name? Rumsfeld? No, no. Uh, well, Robert M. Gates. I met him down at the, the George Bush Center at the University of Texas International Center. Got it. For a couple of days. And anyway, I, I got to meet an awful lot of people who... Uh, I mean, I met communists, ex-communists... Uh, uh, from uh, Hungary and Poland and uh, and of course Fulesa <laughs> and his bunch of bodyguards 
and that was a very very interesting time i learned a great deal about exactly how that whole thing was orchestrated i mean at one point william casey was putting on a uh, groucho marx glasses and nose and taking a uh, plane and showing up at midnight at the vatican to show the pope the u.s spy satellite pictures of the russian troop movements and then he would come back to washington and then about two hours after he left the russians would come in and talk to <laughs> paul uh anyway gates had a joke he said well you know he was the best political operative i've ever met the pope he said he kept his cards very close to his vestments <laughs> it was a fascinating couple of years and it all fell apart because Tom Monahan had sold Domino's Pizza to Bain Capital and got about $1,400,000,000 for it and put it into the Ave Maria Foundation, which uh, was his religious foundation. The people running the Ave Maria Foundation wanted to move their law school and offices from Cold Ann Arbor to Florida to create a town, Ave Maria, Florida. And they didn't want Tom spending $55 million on a movie about his friend, the Pope. And so they put the kibosh on the whole project after two years. And I'd already gotten my heads of department, the director of photography, the production people. We were in Poland at the time. Actually, we'd gone on to Czechoslovakia. I was in Czechoslovakia in Prague when I heard that the project was off because they wanted all the money to uh, move the university down to uh, their new town in in Florida, which, of course, they did eventually. And uh, the Supreme Court gave them a lot of trouble because they tried to have conservative Catholic principles in their pharmacies down there. And uh, they were overruled. Anyway, that whole fiasco cost some hundreds of millions of dollars in Florida and was not very successful. But it was the end of our picture. So I got a wonderful two-year education on the inner workings of the Vatican, CIA, KGB, Solidarity. <laughs> it was great, very interesting. I mean, having Jack with me, Gandhi was the Pope's favorite movie. And most people were very eager to talk to Jack because of Gandhi. So um, it was quite a time. And Jack and I were like the odd couple traveling all over Europe. We had a great time. And that's a lot of that is in the book. A bit after that, I guess what is Aldous Huxley had a book after uh, many a day, uh, after many a summer dies a swan. And he pointed out that there are only two activities that don't involve the ego. And that is uh, the search for transcendence of the personality and the observation of animals and their instinctual behavior. Everything else is really an expression of ego, even a brain surgeon doing it. So I set out to make a film about cats with no people in the film. I mean, you'll probably remember from Francois Truffaut just getting that one shot, and I think it was day for night, to get the cat to eat the milk. It was quite an accomplishment. Anyway, we were gonna do a full feature film with nothing but cats. And we did, we shot, we shot for quite a while. And Susan Emerson was the director and photographer and she did the work for a bunch of years, three years. And when I showed it to Universal, they said, oh, not enough story, you need another cat. So she went out and she did another three years worth of work. And right towards the end, we needed the uh, voices for the, uh, you know, for the various cats. And uh, 
I still remember, I guess, uh, who was it? Jane Fonda's son, Troy, had a friend who had gone a little nuts in the Amazon doing ayahuasca, and they asked me to just talk to the guy and uh, see if I can help him, which I did. It was fairly easy to do, you know, to talk to him a lot about the uh, mystical properties of <laughs> regurgitation that Andy Weil wrote about and how that becomes a cleansing process and how the uh, nuclear issues can be resolved in these transformations of energy under ayahuasca, among other things. And basically I was able to put into context all his experiences so he could understand them as a, an evolutionary process with his friend. And uh, I was happy to do it, you know. And as he was leaving, he said, geez, if there's anything I can ever do for you, let me know. So I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a director of uh, voiceovers for those big animated movies. I said, wow, well, we need some voices for our cat movie. And he went out and got us, uh, you know, a great, you know, Jeremy Piven, uh, what does the girl? Michelle Rodriguez. My, Michelle Rodriguez, and then uh, the girl. From Jeremy Sisto is in it, and. Uh, Jeremy Sisto, yeah. Basically, he got us a whole cast of uh, good actors to be in it uh, for, for nothing. For SAG. And just so listeners know, when you say they did it for SAG, you're referring to Screen Actors Guild minimum. Right, yeah. for a few hundred dollars. Uh, you know, and I mean, Entourage was a big hit then, and Michelle was doing Fast and Furious, so it was, a, it was quite a favor he did for us. And that turned into a very nice little movie, but by the time it was finished, you know, big budget, lip sync, animated films had totally taken over the kids' market, so... There was really, you know, just small independent outlet for it. It's still, you can still see it streaming on YouTube or something. And that is Susan Emerson, who you've worked with on several films. You were, she was your cinematographer on The November Men, uh, the DP on Mirage. Um, yes. And uh, also your collaborator on A Cat's Tale. By the way, that's actually now called The Amazing Adventure of Marcello the Cat. The Amazing Adventure of... Marcello the Cat. Marcello the Cat. You can Google it and see it for free online. And you're currently living in where? Where are you currently residing? I'm living uh, a few hours south of Rio de Janeiro on the what they call the Costa Verde, uh, by the ocean, a small fishing village that's been here for 3,000 years. And with a, you know, that 400 square mile view from the porch over the Atlantic and the mountains and the Restinga and the lagoons. It's an amazing spot. I really like Brazil very much. So in a sense you are an artist in exile and I think that's one of the things that I want to talk about about your book is in a way, you even when you were at the center of a pretty impressive scene in Hollywood, you were in a kind of you were on your way to being in exile in many different ways because of your inclination towards spiritual growth. Is at least at least that's what I get from. Well, the book. not just no, 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 no. In okay. the beginning, it was economics. 
in the beginning it was you know that uh, I was spending a lot of time with Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver and uh, you know I was saw very clearly what was happening in the uh, political and economic spheres how the middle class was being you know diminished the Republicans were lowering taxes legally on corporations and the mega rich and uh, the place was becoming in, I just saw the whole thing uh, becoming a, a playground for the rich and powerful and uh, everything that's become obvious today okay today what I'm saying is obvious as hell but it was obvious as hell to me two and a half generations ago I mean when Lorne Michaels came to me and said let's do Saturday Night Live I said, yeah, but hey, we got to really talk about what's happening with the military-industrial complex. Well, they're taking everybody's money, they're building up this mega fortress, and that's what we got to do. And he said, look, this is network TV, we're not going to do that. So I said, you go do that. I don't want to become a great distractor of capitalist entertainment. So no, I don't think it started with spiritual at all. I was really upset. I studied economics at Harvard. John Galbraith was my tutor. And I'd read very thoroughly, you know, from Thomas Malthus to Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, you know, all the way up, you know, to Keynes and Friedman and all that. So I was pretty well schooled in economics. And uh, it seemed to me very clear that, uh, you know, American movies were becoming distractions and apologies. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody wanted to be successful and rich and famous. And uh, I'm all right, Jack. They weren't really overly concerned with where they came from or how the others were doing. So that's what I would say. And would you say that you came to Hollywood with that consciousness already intact or that being at the center of that? Well, wait, a, you, look, the book, you see, if you read the book, it's a great tale, really. No, when I, when I started out, I was just a kid trying to, you know, I needed something to do. I was a good photographer. I made a, a few documentaries. I thought, oh, I could do this. But early in my life, I again, it was just a coincidence, the woman I happened to be having an intense affair with turned out to be a great heiress. And uh, uh, we got married, and I learned how the, you know, great fortunes of America really worked. It's much worse than anybody, any left-wing writer or people who think they understand how the system works. Uh, I mean, I've seen writing in the last 40 years, Very. it's only recently that people have understood that there's just gigantic amounts of money in very few hands, and these people really run the show. I mean, now you people talk about the Koch brothers or this guy or that guy. What you don't understand is these people were not Koch, but they're big, rich families that have been around for 50 years and more. And I got to see the inner workings of it, and I realized that democracy was a bit of a sham, that, uh, you know, uh, political leaders were hired by people with money to run the show and pass laws that they wanted passed and to run the show the way they want it run. So... Uh, yeah. So when I got to Hollywood, by that time I had reject, you know, I had seen that, and I was really uh, uh, not interested in supporting that trajectory for America or myself. And it seems like, at least at the outset, that 
was a point of view that you felt was shared by many of your peers at that time, maybe just generationally, but there was a shift in that. At least that's one of the things you talk about in your book. Well, when I got out to L.A., I remember Tom Petty came by my house. And, you know, I was—I didn't really know who Tom Petty was. Um, but obviously, he thought it was fairly remarkable uh, what I was up to. With the film The Revolutionary? Yeah. And I thought, you know, that... Um, well... Yeah, I thought a lot of my contemporaries uh, were, uh, well, I guess it turned out that they all really wanted to get ahead and get famous and get rich. Um, and uh, so that's why I ended up being getting more and more radical, ending up with more and more radical uh, people. And then, of course, they turned out not to be as revolutionary as they thought they were. I mean, Eldridge Cleaver ended up manufacturing pants. Even the the Panthers uh, sort of didn't follow through. And I guess that's when I ran into uh, some of the highest men on planet Earth, you know, the head of the, the teacher of the current Dalai Lama, the, one of the heads of uh, Sufism on the planet. And plus, I had many extraordinary experiences on my own. So I became very interested in that whole area and got very good instruction from people who've been studying this stuff, which has been, you know, as a subject of study for thousands of years. And quite a bit is known, but not in the West. Well, that's the second uh, time you've used the term extraordinary in terms of first you talked about uh, exploring extraordinary realms, and then you're talking about extraordinary people. What, what do you mean when you're talking about this extraordinary quality. Well, look, I don't want to go into it on the, deeply here. It's in the book. But I, one of the early experiences I had, I was on the revolutionary shooting. And I was very young. I was like 25. I was directing a movie. And everybody on the film was older than me, including the assistant directors. And I couldn't get a good cup of coffee in the morning. You know, the assistant directors were resentful. They put in too much sugar and not enough sugar, too much milk. Anyway, I had a driver, a guy named uh, Harry, an older man, who then started getting me coffee and looking after me. And I, he, we became, he was my friend on the set, my driver. This was in London. And one afternoon, one late afternoon, when he was driving me home from the set, he asked if I'd like to come and have tea with him and his wife, and I said, sure, and uh, we stopped. I think it was a Bentley or something we were in. Anyway, he came into the house, it was a row house, and I sat down in this chair, the wingback chair, and, this, uh, you know, and I was sitting there, and I kept hearing a little bird tweet in my right ear. And it got louder and louder until finally I looked around, and there was, there was no bird there. And uh, his wife was bringing the tea, and I said, look, uh, you know, I keep hearing this bird tweeting in my ear here on the right. I mean, do you guys hear anything? And I said, right here, right over, and I pointed where it was coming from. And so his wife starts crying, and he says, well, we had a canary, Bungie, who uh, was, we lived for 12 years, uh, but he's been dead for a few years now. And he used to have his cage right where you're pointing. So 
that was a very small little example of uh, something extraordinary. And your book is full of these kinds of stories. Well, I hope more extraordinary than that. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, when I read this, I wonder, you know, your book is called Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men. And Harvard and Hollywood are both big seats of power in the world and also places of tremendous access to pretty much the world, the intellectual world, the spiritual world, the political world, the economic world. These are these are hubs of power and influence and content, I guess. And I just wonder if you've pondered what your path would have been like if you had lived a life more ordinary, that you hadn't had hadn't come into contact with these, you know, sources of massive power. And I guess you were like, you can talk about your relationship too. brought you into a relationship with massive power. Well, I, I, I guess I, I mean, I think that's really reveals mostly your point of view. I mean, very early in my, in my, when I first got to Harvard, I just wanted to meet the smartest people in the world and learn how they talked and how they thought. I mean, I went in and asked Henry Kissinger if I could, if I could audit his class. I was a freshman, and he was like 38, and a brilliant young guy. And or Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian, or George Wald, the Nobel laureate in biology, or B.F. Skinner, or John Galbraith. These were all brilliant guys, and they all. You know, I, I studied with them. Eric Erickson was my tutor junior year, Eric H. Erickson. So uh, I, I, from the very beginning, wanted to figure out what was really going on. I really didn't buy into uh, uh, I mean, my world is much wider than movies or uh, fame and fortune. I was very interested in economic theory and uh, uh, the psychology of perception and uh, how people thought. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I know, you know, I ran into many, many, many situations which are in the book, whether it was, I don't know, throughout my life, certain people have been attracted to me and, I, and I've had a very good time with them. But my... I think uh, I've always been simply trying to be honest with myself and go through the next door honestly with what uh, to find out what was worthwhile and, and uh, that was I think it was a you know a quest of to try to find out what was of real value. So that's Harvard. Let's talk a little bit just briefly about New Hollywood, this concept of New Hollywood that is embodied by many of the people and movements you discuss in the book is a popular one. Uh, but I wonder if looking back, we might have crafted a simplistic view of that time and that generation in film. So when you hear people talk about New Hollywood, what does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me is Francis Coppola was making a movie and Marty Scorsese was really interested in making some movies, and I was interested in making some movies. And we were really the only three guys running around New York at one point. And then other people started showing up, 
Brian De Palma, and uh, uh, and much later Terry Malick and all these guys. But it started out; it was just Coppola, Scorsese, and me, sort of trying to make movies at a time when nobody was making movies of that sort. And then it grew from there. I remember going back to Harvard, actually making a little speech there. Uh, and that, what's his name, Kaufman or somebody was a uh, director, was there. And I said, look, you guys ought to come out to Hollywood because, you know, there's no smart people out there, very smart people, and you'd, you'd all make out very well. Uh, and that's, a lot of people came after that. You know, Jack Lemon and a few other people had been there, but very few hard people, and suddenly they all came. And then, unfortunately, also the business school people came and ruined the whole business. I mean, I think Hollywood was ruined by the Harvard Business School, led by Peter Guber. But that's another story. Did you have a sense at that time, running around New York with Scorsese and Coppola and the people who were surrounding you, that this was the beginning of something, or were you just doing... No, I think we all really wanted to make movies, and we tried to figure out how to do it. There wasn't all, you know, there wasn't the independent movement. There wasn't, uh, you know, it's it's start. It was just starting, but you, it wasn't. There was no video of foreign or all these other things. It was just, hey, how do I get my movie made? I mean, I remember one day I read in the Variety. Oh, there's American Film Institute. I got on a plane, went, got on a plane, got on a train, and went to Washington D.C. Looked up the address, went walking upstairs. An office with few tables and chairs and a phone I go hey hey anybody here and out walks young John uh, George Stevens Jr. and I said yeah yeah I read in Variety that you guys are going to help filmmakers I need some help and he said well you can see we haven't really started yet (laughs) we're not in business yet so I said okay well when you get in business let me know but you know that's the kind of thing you would do I mean then you know eventually set up the American Film Institute but right then he had a he had one phone and a and a card table at a little room in Washington D.C. But I would follow up everything that I could, looking looking for uh, help. Well, we're going to get into a lot of those adventures in filmmaking throughout the course of this podcast. In closing, there are several screenings of your films coming up on the horizon, including a very large retrospective being planned by the Roxy Theater in New York City for late March. And I'm just curious, is there anything you'd like to say to modern viewers as they approach your filmography? Uh, Yeah, I think the most important thing I'd say is they were made during the actual times that the film, these are not films you look back on 10 years later and are nostalgic for those times. These were made right in the midst of uh, the actual experiences. I mean, you know, Francis, let's face it, made Apocalypse 10 years later. Uh, I made the revolutionary. I was getting beaten up and running around Chicago and Algeria and the CIA and the FBI. I mean, it was all happening. And I was making a movie in the middle of it. Prior, I'd made a movie about high school. But I was just out of it. I was not looking back at it nostalgically. I was looking at it traumatically. And the next film after that was about going to Harvard and becoming a criminal, getting over your ethical uh, rectitude and becoming a, uh, looking into the primacy of your own ego. 
so in some sense, if they're going to look at the films, I think they should see it's their stories about coming to see the delusions under which the, the character starts out each film with delusions about what has power over him. And by the end of the film, he's reached the other side. But then the next film is a new set of delusions. There's first the delusions of high school and the tyranny of cheerleaders and football players. And then there's, you know, the ethics and uh, morals of revolution and radical uh, compassion. But they have their end game as well. And then comes, uh, you know, feelings about uh, the ethical nature of uh, conformity and how you have to rise above that. And it goes on and on, each film. But in any event, the films are kind of a serial uh, catharsis. <laughs> They're not nostalgic, look back, oh, what were we doing back then kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's good. I think it, to approach these films with that sense of, if you can try and get yourself into the urgency of those times, uh, you'll have an easier time, uh, you know, uh, entering them. Then if you're, uh, then if you're, yeah, I, they to... may seem very stilted and dated now. For all I know, I don't know. But that's what if they are, that. then that's in a way that's the sort of the mental transla translation we need to well, make. Well, you know, you know, it, you know. Do you ever read Jack London? Yeah. Uh, because one of the most fascinating things, I mean, he's a wonderful writer, but all his characters speak in a kind of a pre-Freudian, unselfconscious way. And you say, gee, I didn't realize people talked like that, right? Because the times change and the way people behave change and what they assume is true change and what they believe in changes. So I think each of these films is a pretty accurate representation of what reality was like at that time, much as Jack London's was when he wrote. Yeah, yeah, I think they are too. And I think that's, uh, I think we're going to be exploring more chapters from actually well, actually we're going to be exploring actual chapters from your book as this podcast continues and i'm looking forward to continuing our conversations and filling in the blanks and uh, potentially to seeing you at one of these screenings okay i understand the book's coming out on valentine's day so you know that's uh, next week actually so. that's this week that's the day this podcast comes out Go get it, people. Oh, Rush to out. your bookstores. <laughs> Rush to your computers. Purchase this book while there are still copies left. <laughs> Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at the World is Wrong podcast. And now, back to the show. Hey folks, Andras here. Thanks a lot for listening to this podcast. I know it's a little bit of a change of pace from what we've been doing, but I think it's important material and I hope you enjoy it. 
In next week's episode, Paul reminisces about performing an alchemical initiation while negotiating a labor dispute on the set of the film Badlands. Hollywood is far away. I am finally ready to start the highest meditation, the alchemical transformation. But Ed Pressman suddenly shows up at the Eureka Center and pleads that I fly immediately to the Colorado location of Badlands, starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. He says the crew assembled by the production manager has refused to continue working for the first-time director Terrence Malick, whom I had championed to Ed. Ed says, Terry punched out the production manager, Lou Stroller. Exciting stuff, huh? If you have questions for Paul or me, please send them to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer them in subsequent episodes. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast and on Twitter at worldiswrongpod. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.